Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 28, Notebooks of an Appalachian Conjure Man with Jake Richards. Jake is a conjure man from East Tennessee and the author of two books, Backwoods Witchcraft and the new Doctoring the Devil. He's a consummate folklorist and these books are chock full of all sorts of tidbits from Appalachia. In this episode we speak a lot about Appalachian folklore, about the plants that he uses in his conjure practice, about magical ethics and an eye for an eye, justice versus revenge, how magic and tradition relate to health and diseases, and a bit on energetics. He also talks a lot about his personal background and family, and how to work with ancestors that might be a little difficult. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast, and for sharing it with your friends who are interested in these sorts of things. If you want to help support the podcast, you're welcome to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash plantcunning. We also love to hear your feedback, and you can email us at plantcunning at gmail.com. Well, I hope you enjoy the episode. So today we have Jake Richards on the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Jake. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. So you're the author of two books, Backwoods Witchcraft, Conjure, and Folk Magic from Appalachia, and Doctoring the Devil, Notebooks of an Appalachian Conjure Man. And I have to say, once we started reading these, both Isaac and I could not put them down. We literally just ate it up. So thank you so much um, for writing these books. Super interesting. Great job thank on those. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess the first question is traditionally how you came to the plant path, and in your case... Magic. Magic as well. So could you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, yeah. I was raised in uh, Upper East Tennessee. I've lived here my whole life. And like growing up, my family just always, more so my mom's family than my dad's family, always followed like the old time, like superstitions and old wise tales. So it wasn't anything, you know, strange for us to pull out a you know, a plum bob or just put a wedding ring on a string to find out, you know, like the sex of a baby or, you know, anything of that kind of nature. Um, so I was essentially raised around it and it was second nature. Um, I just didn't really recognize uh, exactly what it was until I basically taught myself to see it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And you also, you say in the book that you spent a lot of time, you know, out in the creeks and in the, in the hills. Um, did, do you think that affected how you, um, how you see the world and how you uh, work with plants and, and other spirits? Oh, definitely. Because uh, like, like, I guess subconsciously it just kind of teaches you that there's like consequences to your actions. Like, um, yeah. yeah. Like I learned early on, like, uh, I don't know what the actual practice is called, but it's like where you stack rocks up in creeks or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was taught from an, from an early age that that was, you know, horrible to do, especially like in creeks or rivers. Cause you know, whenever it rains, the river rises and it can, you know, push those rocks over and, you know, hurt something, whether it's like a crawfish or, you know, a salamander, you know, anything like that. So I was basically taught early on to basically, uh, you know, leave, leave things as they were when you found them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So do you think you could talk a little bit about the some of the plants that you use and how you use them? Well, one of my favorites is uh, ginseng. Mm, yeah. Um, simply because it's so versatile in not only, you know, folk medicine, you know, using it medicinally, but also like folk healing and folk magic in general. Um there's a lot that I use. Ginseng, bloodroot, uh, Adam and Eve root, sometimes Galax if I can find it. What uh, was that? Galax. It's, it's, a, it's another, um, I guess what you would call like a commodity, commodity plant. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people here still, you know, when their monthly government checks, you know, run out because of paying bills or whatever, 
dig they'll roots. still, you know, go go out into the woods and dig roots and yeah. uh, gather up moss and stuff like that to sell. Right. Um, and Galax is used, I think it's still used, I don't know. Um, it used to be used for, like, uh, like it would be sold to, like, florist shops because the leaves of them are, I guess, really pretty or something like that. I, at least when it was being, you know, gathered and sold, uh, you could sell it for like a dollar fifty per leaf. Wow. Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with that plant. Of, of course, we're we're up here in in living in New York now. Like we're at the upper limits of like that ecosystem. So like we're kind of in the northern yeah. hardwoods, and we still have like ginseng up here and bloodroot, but we don't have like pawpaw. So I'm I'm planting some pawpaws. But um, oh, I love pawpaw. I love pawpaw yeah, me too. too. So good. I love pawpaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you use pawpaw for besides eating? Well, pawpaw, <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, so good. Uh, <laughs> there's a place up in uh, Kingsport. I don't know if they use actual pawpaw, but it's still good. It's uh, some kind of cider place. Uh, and they like put it in their some kind of mixed drink or something. It's amazing. Mm. I think it's called like Gypsy Circus or something like that. Yeah. Um, but pawpaw itself is used for... Um, more so like like cursing and general witchcraft kind of i forget what name the cherokee had for it um but it's because the the actual flowers of the pawpaw smell like rotting meat oh yeah Uh, so like the deer deer and stuff won't go near it and then there was the swallowtail butterfly that it's basically like the only pollinator for it from flies so the cherokee always they live the they it's one of the only host plants like the the caterpillars live on it which is interesting yeah. because like they get that the there's like a poison in the leaf that they'll use as an insecticide or pest or herbicide. Mm-hmm. And so like like with milkweed with the monarchs, like they, they eat that poison so then no other bugs will eat them. So like the same with the swallowtails, they'll eat the, the leaves of that so that no other, you know, no, nothing will eat them. But so it's interesting that like it's a it's a, in a, it's a poison in a way. And so maybe that's where like yeah. the witchcraft uh, thing came from. Yeah, well, the because the swallowtail butterfly was always, you know, constantly around the tree itself, you know, pollinating the flowers that smell like rotting meat. Uh, people always said that, uh, like, haints and lost spirits would gather under the tree when it was flowering. So it was basically mm-hmm. believed to be like kind of like a cursed tree of sorts. Yeah, that's really interesting. Papa is, is such an interesting plant for some of those reasons. It's like it grows on the, the boundary edges, like by the creek or on the forest mm-hmm. edge. And it's both poisonous and, you know, really edible and medicinal, too. And also kind of like poke. Do you use poke? Uh, yeah, poke, uh, poke weed root. Yeah. Because that's another plant where, like, you know, it's an Appalachian plant. And I've, I grew mm-hmm. up, like, eating the leaves, but it's also, like, deadly poisonous if you <laughs> use the wrong parts. Well, not deadly poisonous, but... Yeah. I've, I've also heard that if you, uh, like, the actual taproot of the, of the plant, that if you cook it a certain way, it kind of, like, acts like a narcotic or a painkiller. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm not that cook-savvy to try that. Well, I heard <laughs> of... Somebody- my luck, I would just... I would cook it just under what I needed to. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then we talked about some of these um, more like rare plants, but you also use like dandelion and kudzu. I was wondering if mm-hmm. you could talk about what we use those for. Oh, I love kudzu. I yeah. just, I love kudzu. Because my, my dad's mom, she used to own like a, like a floral shop. She ran it out of her basement. Oh, cool. Um, she would use that and, uh, grapevine to make like wreaths and stuff like that yeah. um, but kudzu I kind of use it for basically making sure that uh, that a working takes root and that it you know kind of acts quickly because of how fast the plant itself can grow Yeah, cool. but it can also be used for especially like in cursing work or for any kind of work where you're wanting uh, some aspect of a situation to die out or be strangled out because the plant itself you know, can strangle out entire acres of land in no time. Hmm. So That's... speaking of cursing, I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about magical ethics and um, like an eye for an eye theory and mm-hmm. how, how you feel about cursing. Well, historically, it was always, you know, an eye for an eye. So anything that you did, you know, to somebody and it came about, um, again, because of the, the religious aspect and the fact that, you know, the power doesn't come from just you. It also, you know, basically comes from uh, the creator. 
so it was basically believed that anything you did to somebody else, God had, you know, just as much to do with it as you did. Now, simply because of my personal beliefs, I believe that justice is uh, subjective. So whatever, you know, some other person think is justified, I may not think that's justified. So whenever I'm doing like cursing work or anything like that, I leave it up to the ancestors and up to God to decide, you know, exactly what that punishment is that would fit eye for an eye, if that makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. Well, it seems very like individualistic about like what, you know, what somebody's ethics are. Like I personally, like, I don't like working with curses. You know, I'd rather work with blessings if I can help it, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't want to tell anybody else what to do either. Like, you know, everyone's got their own. When some, in some situations, cursing is, uh, kind of like a form of healing a situation. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the scalpel that you need to cut in order to take the tumor out. Mm. Right. Um, like I, I don't agree with, you know, just cursing for, you know, any old reason. Like I've had people come to me for, uh, one person came to me and wanted me to curse a coworker of theirs because, that coworker had told their boss that they were using their phone while driving on the, on like on the job or whatever. And I was like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, you shouldn't have been texting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I see like, you know, I, I try not to go on social media very much and I don't really, but even like a couple of years ago, I, I, it seemed like so common for people to just curse people for not really any yeah. reason. And it's like, you're just, I mean, whether or not like you believe in karma or like return, like working with the energies changes you, you know what I mean? Like it's like the strawberry jam principle where like if whatever you work with, whatever energies you work with a little bit rubs off on you. And if you know how to work with it, then that's one thing. Or if you know, you know how, how to wear gloves when you're doing surgery, that's one thing, but if you're just throwing curses out. Yeah, and it's all about how you like walk up to the table for it as well. Um, it's all about like the actual like stance that you're taking. Like, are you actually looking for justice? Or are you just looking for revenge? Because there is a difference between the two. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I like how you're like, I'm going to leave it to the ancestors and the higher power. It's like out of your pay grade, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I, and I only, you know, resort to cursing if there's no, like, actual physical solution, kind of. Yeah. Um, especially if I don't have bail money. Well, it also seems like in a lot of cases, it can be just as helpful to do a blessing as it would, you know, it would solve the same problem if you do a blessing for like the victim as opposed to a curse for the perpetrator. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. do you, I guess it's interesting. It's just interesting to hear like how like a working conjure man deals with these issues because you probably face that like a lot, like having to make that decision. Occasionally, uh, most of the time, I just, uh, you know, somebody's causing issues. I just ignore it until. Uh, they just demand not to be ignored and then I'll pay attention to them. Yeah. That's actually really interesting. Dion fortune talks in psychic self-defense about how sometimes the best reaction to a curse is to just ignore it. <laughs> and that just goes whistling by you hmm. or, you know, goes back to the sender. Mm-hmm. Um, what are ways that you protect yourself either from curses or haints or things like that? If you could give some tangible examples. Um, well, I always carry the, uh, left hind foot of a rabbit. Uh, I carried the, the a lucky black cat bone that a client gave me. Uh, she had found a, a black cat, uh, you know, just died of natural causes on her property. And she boiled the, the bones and everything. And she sent me some. Uh, you know, I carry a lot with me. Like, it doesn't look like it, but I carry a lot with me. <laughs> um, spent bullets. Uh, Quarters that have been shot through with a bullet, hold pennies, as well as uh, like a couple of glory notes. I think that's all. Well, you also you also speak about the coyote skin in your book, which I think was a really interesting mm-hmm. way to work with an animal spirit. You know, I haven't hadn't really seen things like that. I mean, I, I kind of similar to working with like a plant spirit, like with high John or something. Do you think you go into like a little bit about how you work with animal spirits in that way? Uh, well, yeah, I only do it if I, if like, you know, through divination, I can tell that they, you know, agree to work with me. Um, if at any point, you know, they decide not to, then I will, you know, bury the hide or the bones or, you know, anything like that. Um, really the only, 
animal spirit that, that I work with is the one of the coyote pelt. Um, I named I named him Old Blue, um, and that's basically just to keep you know unwanted people away, or it's basically go and warn people who are uh, sticking their nose in places it doesn't need to be. Yeah, cool. So you use divination a lot to to like help you decide on like what is worth doing and what's not. So I mean, if you don't, then you're at that point. You could just be wasting can- candles and all that, and that stuff costs money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Reading Backwoods Witchcraft uh, got to the end, and your epilogue uh, was really moving to me. You seem to love Appalachia so much, and I'm from Appalachia too, but I'm more from the north. Like my dad's side of the family is mm-hmm. from West Virginia, and then my mom's side is from Pennsylvania. And now we live in like Southern New York, but it's it's a different yeah. it's a different culture, the north and the south. But the mountain range is is the same, <laughs> and I, I I feel that too that love. Yeah. Um, could you, you know, speak a little bit about on a little bit about how, um, like why you love Appalachia so much? Well, I guess first and foremost, um, it's primarily because all the roots of my family have been in Appalachia for God knows how long. The furthest that I've traced it is back to the mid 1600s, however long ago that was, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, d- uh, different sides of the family were always, you know, in this same area. So I guess it's primarily just like deep roots, I guess, because I used to travel for work. Excuse me. Um, and like, all, like everywhere else in the country had like a different like feel to it, like a different uh spirit yeah like i guess ambience or yeah spirit of place or something like that and it all just felt foreign um and that's that's kind of like a paradox because like everybody uh that i worked with on the traveling job everybody on my team all of us are from like we're from like east tennessee most of them were from like kingsport tennessee but uh one of the paradoxes was whenever we come home to tennessee we just want to do nothing but travel. But as soon as we get back on the road, we're homesick. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a double-edged sword. I, I feel you. I was in a touring band for a while and I felt the same way. Like I love visiting the high desert of, of Arizona or the, the forest. Oh yeah. I loved Arizona. Yeah. yeah. And like the Pacific Northwest is beautiful, but like there's nothing like, you know, those old mountains back mm-hmm. East. Yeah. It just doesn't feel familiar. The first time I ever left, the mountains uh was when my dad's mother moved to nashville mm. and that was the furthest west that i had you know gone before you know i went traveling or whatever and it felt so strange i felt so like open and vulnerable because there were no mountains <laughs> on the horizon i just didn't feel safe yeah yeah i feel you mm-hmm. so um in doctoring the devil you go into a little bit about the different kinds of healers and root like there's there's like yarb doctors there's root doctors and there's root workers there's um you know faith healers and witches like they're all very very different you could uh explain to our our audience a little bit about the different specialties that people get into or the gifts that people have and how they classify that in southern appalachia well it was one of the things that i wanted to include in in backwoods witchcraft but i ended up running out of room and i just didn't have the you know the room for it um so basically there are like different degrees to the practice itself. Um, and that's why I make the, the initial distinction between folk magic and conjure because, the, you know, many families, uh, you know, the old superstitions that they call like hanging up a horseshoe or uh, putting sod outside the window or anything like that. Um, that is essentially, you know, folk magic. Uh, it's, you know, basically any action taken due to a superstition, or uh, some kind of sympathetic belief of sorts. Whereas conjure is basically folk magic with a helping hand from, you know, your ancestors, from God, from the angels, mm-hmm. uh, you know, usually said with some kind of prayer invoking, you know, some other entity for their aid with the, with the work itself. You're basically conjuring their spirit or conjuring, you know, their help. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Appalachia, there was always, uh, because the work itself, it really requires a, a, a certain type of willpower, a certain, uh, what's the word? 
it, it requires you to have a, a certain countenance when you, you know, come to the actual work. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so there were, you know, just like in uh, the folk healing practices, there were those who were better at, you know, stopping the flow of blood than curing fresh in a child. Um, mm. So, of course, there were those who were better at finding out witches and breaking their curses or their, you know, their spells over people or livestock. Um, then there were others who, you know, were well-versed in all kinds of things, whether it was love magic, um, you know, getting back at your enemies or whatever like that, that were called, uh, you know, conjure doctors, root, root doctors, whatever it may be. Um, and then it further, you know, splits off. Uh, like there were some who were, they were like, kind of like folk veterinarians. Um, so they were like called horse doctors or cow doctors, and they would primarily only uh, help with like sick livestock or anything like that. And even then they could use, you know, only herbs medicinally for, you know, healing the sick animal, or they may also use, you know, uh, like sympathetic remedies, like prayers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different, uh, like overlapping because there were some, you know, folk killers who were preachers who didn't, uh, believe that, you know, like witches had any kind of power or that herbs had any kind of power or anything like that. Whereas there were others who integrated a little bit of every degree into their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a whole giant Venn diagram. Right. So it's very individualistic and it depends on the, the individual's particular gifts and so on. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about your family and the gifts that your elders have and that you and your sister have? Well, that's, that's kind of, kind of where the, I decided to, um, you know, speak more about the actual degrees of the practice because, you know, not everybody in my family was, you know, a conjurer, not everybody in my family was an herb doctor and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, like my great, great grandfather, Oscar, he was a water witch for, you know, this local area here. Um, but aside from that, I don't know, you know, what else he did or what else he practiced. So as far as I know, he, he was simply, you know, a water witch. He would go around and, you know, help people find, you know, water to dig wells for. Okay. Um, now my, let's see here, my mother's paternal grandmother, uh, she mama said that she always had you know like oil lamps burning she was always kind of burning some kind of musty powder on the stove eyes mm. um you know my mother hated staying the night at her house she said that uh it felt like the walls were breathing and they were constantly watching her um so based on like the you know the oil lamps or whatever because we because uh, i inherited one uh after my nana passed in january of 2020 um and there was, there was something, because it was like, it had one of those old-time wicks on it. Uh, so it was like the flat cotton type instead of like, just like the shoestring-looking kind. Yeah. Um, and it had something ri- written on it at, at some point, but I can't, oh. I can't tell what it, you know, what it said at this point. It had just, you know, been washed down by the lamp oil. Mm. Um, now, my after she passed we were going through um you know like old photo albums and everything like that because nana kept pictures of everything literally everything (laughs) Uh, (laughs) well no it wasn't after she passed it was just a little bit before uh because we were looking for a picture of my papa oscar that she said she had found but then she put it somewhere and then forgot where she put it Mm -hmm. uh and i found a picture of my nana's father james and in the picture, you know, every everywhere else is clear except for some little doll that he's holding. And it looks like like an old, I don't know if it's porcelain or plastic, but you can tell like it's got like a painted face on it. Mm. Um, and it had like black rooster feathers tied to its back. And it's the only blurry thing in the photo. Um, and as far as she could ever, you know, tell me about her father, because I, you know, didn't start asking until after the dementia had set in. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said that he never really went to church, but he was, you know, still a, a good man in her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he rarely ever, you know, cussed or anything like that. 
So aside from the doll, I have no idea, you know, what it was for. I think he may have been a conjurer because otherwise, I mean, I, I can't explain the doll. Yeah, <laughs> um, seems to make sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then her mother, my uh, mama Sadie, that's going down the, the Melungeon side. Uh, she used to make she used to make dolls as well, little uh, like corn corn dollies. Um, Mama said she was always making them, but she never like saw them around the house, so she has no idea what she would do with all the dolls that she made. Because uh, you know she never took them anywhere or sold them or anything like that. Hmm. Um, so as with you know any any family, it's just a bunch of little you know puzzle pieces that you know you can only make an estimated guess on. Um, the the only ones that I know for certain are my grandmother and my mother. Mm-hmm. And that's just on my mother's side. And then on my father's side, uh, uh, my mom Hobson, she used to hang up, you know, like corn cobs and stuff like that to keep uh, evil spirits from getting to the pigs and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then my father's grandfather, paternal grandfather, he's the one that would, uh, you know, lay the, the, manu- the manure in the garden when the moon was a certain phase. So it would actually sink, sink down into the soil instead of just laying on top. Um, cool. So all, all across my family tree, there's, you can see the different, uh, like varying degrees of practice essentially. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and it, yeah, there can be people who are just doing these practices like planting by the moon or, you know, lighting mm-hmm. candles for specific reasons. But then there are also like people who, are specialized in you know root work or so on like so like you're you are you you're an, a yarb doctor or what do you specialize uh, conjure man but i also do, i also do uh you know some healing with herbs both medicinally and magically um there's just you know so many herbs and uh, especially there's some herbs in appalachian now that uh you know were used a lot in folk healing back in the day that are now becoming either scarce to find or, you know, they're officially endangered. Yeah. Like um, Adam and Eve root and ginseng and so on. Yeah. So I'm more so stick with like the, like the sympathetic healing, mm-hmm. um, like the kind that you see in like the long lost friend or, uh, the Egyptian secrets, that, that kind of, uh, sympathetic healing. So where did, where did you learn to do this? What was the process like for becoming a conjure man? Well, I mean, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like, you know, your family just sits you down and, you know, tells you in one setting. It was, uh, uh it was basically a lifelong process of, because I mean, when, when you speak to your elders, uh, that's why it's so important to listen because the first time that they, that they tell you something is going to be, you know, uh, the one time that, you know, all the information is complete because if you ask them again, then. They may, they may, you know, leave stuff out. Um, and most of the time it was only, you know, stuff that was mentioned in passing, whether it came up in conversation or, you know, anything like that based on, you know, what was happening that day. Um, and so you basically like, you know, you have to like piece it together in your own mind, um, you know, based on what you learn from your elders at different points of time, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, uh, I basically, you know, had to teach myself to uh, basically be on the lookout, essentially, because the first time, you know, I first started talking about it or you know, learning about it was my grandmother was talking about how Pavel uh, could, you know, stop the flow of blood with a Bible verse. Hmm. And that was during the time when, uh, you know, I had just came out of the closet of gay. So I was I was like, um, wait a minute, that sounds like witchcraft. Um so then that's when I started seeking, you know, seeking it out uh, more, whether it was like old folklore books, uh, old ghost stories, you know, anything of that same nature. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, you know, speaking to my elders that are, you know, still here. Because um, a lot of my elders, you know, passed away when I was, you know, like, you know, real little. Yeah. Um, but I did also, you know, speak to, you know, other people, whether it was, you know, random folks at work, random people at gas stations, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you're kind one of, one example was, yeah, go ahead. Huh? You're fine. 
uh, you were just, I was just going to say, you're kind of just like a sponge. Once you were, once you're, um, open to it, you're like, all right, you're a random person at a gas station. Like, what can I learn from you? You know? Yeah. Uh, because I had never, you know, because I had always been, you know, told of like the witch stories in our family, like of one great aunt on my father's side, who <laughs> the way my grandmother told me was, uh, that they lived in a cabin way out in North Carolina somewhere. And her husband was always curious as to, you know, what did, what did she do during the day when he went out to work? So he said that he was going to work one day and decided to like, uh, wait in the woods behind the house. Uh And he saw her leave the house and cross a hill and he followed after her. But then when he reached the top of the hill, there there was no one there, but, a like a wild hog. And then the, the story goes that he basically killed the hog and then the hog turned out to be his wife. Wow. Um, yeah. So like all kinds of, you know, stories like that. So I don't know, I guess it, initially it was like a, like a self-discovery journey at first. Uh-huh. And then it got to the point where, you know, I was reading cards and stuff for friends and then they needed help with, you know, a bunch of other things. And then, you know, the ball kept tumbling from there. Mm. Cool. Uh, so it wasn't like you learn it in just one weekend or anything like that. The majority of it is taught to you over a long period of time by your ancestors, by the spirit. You have to know, you, you know, have to basically know how to pick your battles, kind of. Because like not everything, you know, requires root work or, you know, anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need to let, you know, let things be. Yeah. I'm curious what the importance of religion is in your lineage. Well, that's that's how it's a little bit iffy. Because um, my family, well, aside from my grandmother in her earlier days, we were never like the church-going type. Um, like we didn't believe, we don't believe that you have to go to church or that you have to, uh, you know, join a church through baptism or anything like that in order to, you know, get into hev- heaven, basically. Yeah. Because um, my grandmother always used to say that you can get saved, you know, anywhere. Uh, just as much as you can get saved, you know, sitting at the pews at church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I talk about it in Backwoods too, how the uh, how the actual dogma of the Christian church in Appalachia is a lot more loose than it is elsewhere. Um, because people see no issue in, you know, screwing up a little bit and then, you know, simply asking for forgiveness. Um it basically got to the point where, especially through like all the isolation and stuff in our history in Appalachia, that God was no longer, you know, some higher power out there, but some higher power that was here, like in your house, in your living room, in the, like a part of the family kind of. Um, so there was never like any kind of uh, middleman concept with Appalachian Christianity. And with that, it also, you know, taught the mountaineer that he can go directly to the creator himself. Um, And, you know, that paired with uh, sympathetic healing and conjure that he can uh, basically kind of work with God with the the deck that life has given him. Yeah. And the the Christian Bible seems to play a, a huge part in your practices, like, you know, all the Psalms and the prophets and saints, like, it's interesting that you're, you're using that framework, but like a uh, little more loosely than some, some Christians that I know, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like out here, like we have some Amish neighbors and I was talking on another a previous podcast about this, how like the contemporary Christian worldview is like there's just god and then there's the devil and like that's how Mm -hmm. like my amish neighbors think but the worldview that you're that you explore in in these books like it's populated there are little people there are haints there are all sorts of other beings around you know it's not just yeah god and the devil (laughs) so yeah because in like the way i was raised because uh my family always you know told us that we were cherokee um, because my father's side, I mean, you can, you can see the Cherokee in them. Um, and that's, you know, how I discovered, 
you know, the whole Melungia thing on both sides. Like my father's family won't even talk to me about it now. Um, because they're adamant that it's nothing but Cherokee, except there's our names aren't on any roles, you know, anything like that. Um, but growing up, because they were so adamant about it, I grew up with, you know, the Cherokee stories and going to Cherokee festivals and seeing the dances and, you know, everything like that. Um, so it was kind of like ingrained into my worldview, but it was kind of like already there for my parents as well. I don't know if they were, you know, raised in the same fashion or not. Um, but it was basically always uh, kind of like common sense that we're not the only sentient life within right. God's view, kind of. Yeah, that, that does seem like common sense to me now, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, what is the role of the ancestors and how do you work with ancestors uh, either on a daily basis? Um, I'm actually also really curious about how you heal ancestral trauma, things that come up. Well, the ancestors, it's, you know, always a reminder, you know, where you come from. Um, I've always been told growing up, never forget your roots. Um, even when I you know, started traveling and making all kinds of money, my mom always told me, don't forget your roots. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as annoying as it got, it was true. You know, down to your own blood and bones, you are your ancestors. And I've noticed that a lot after the passing of my grandmother. I've noticed, you know, like a lot of mannerisms of mine are, I guess, mannerisms that I picked up from her. So, like, when you start recognizing your ancestors within yourself, um, it's kind of not uncommon for you to think about them every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they kind of help you not only find your place in the world, but also hold it there. Mm. So like you, it's always weird feelings that you can't really put into words. I mean, they're not only there for, you know, to help hold your place in the world, uh, especially on the pathways that they have, you know, blazed before you, but also there for guidance because whatever you're going through, they most likely went through as well in, you know, some form or manner. Because while the world around us has changed, humanity has not changed. We still have the same needs. We still have the same wants. We still have the same desires and fears. And we all, you know, still deal with the, the same kind of losses, whether it's the loss of a family member, um, a lo- the loss of a pet, the loss of, you know, everything that you, that, that you had to your name. It, you know, happened to somebody else down your line. So it's like keeping that family connection beyond worlds, uh, like a constant family reunion. Like you're, you're never alone. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, decoration day or the, you know, caring for the graves of the dead is so important because it's the only thing that we can basically kind of do for them from this side of the veil. Hmm. Now that was, you know, way back in the day before, uh, you know, folks, families started getting, you know, scattered all, all over the place in public cemeteries and all of that. Uh, that's why, you know, ancestor shrines and things like that are, you know, a fairly new practice in Appalachia. Because used to, it would just be, you know, on the family land. And it was kind of a requirement to, uh, you know, take care of their graves or whatever. Because, I mean, if you don't, you're going to have, a, an, you know, an angry spirit not 20 feet from your front door. Like, they know where you live. They know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's why the answer it's just it, it's kind of like the same, you know, on this side too. If you're disrespectful to a family member, I mean, you know, you're gonna piss them off and they're not going to, you know, help you or, you know, loan you money or you know, do any favors for you or you know, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I found, you know, ancestor work to be very powerful, like just for yeah, like a like a it's not even it's hard to talk about it, but it's like there, you know, it's like there in the background. And like, yeah. and in regards, uh huh. Well, like daily, like daily, day, like um, acknowledging them every day. I think is is a really important part of that too. But or yearly, yeah, know? and uh, yeah, and that's where the whole, um, you know, because I mean, you still need protection with your ancestors as well, especially those that you mm-hmm. didn't actually know in life. Um, because, you know, not everybody, you know, down your family tree was a good person. Mm. And especially if they haven't moved on, they're probably still an asshole, honestly. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the whole, you know, healing ancestral trauma comes into play. Mm-hmm. Because throughout all the, you know, major events of history, 
you know, politics, racial issues, everything like that, whether you like it or not, your ancestors played some kind of part in it, whether they were on the right side of history or they were on the wrong side of history. Um, and because you still carry that blood, you need to acknowledge that within yourself, whether it's, you know, uh, inherited racism or, you know, anything like that, any kind of other generational uh, stuff like addiction, um, you know, whatever, whatever else there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned um, the word Melungian a couple times already. Uh, some of our listeners probably might not know what that means. Um, do you think you could explore that a little bit? Like, cause that's a really a, an example of, of that, like in your ancestry of, of like people who are both a slave owner and slave. Yeah. Talk about that. And that's book. why I worded it that way in backwoods because during that time is when, you know, I was basically finding out that, you know, both sides of the family kind of lied. Uh, there, there were no, you know, people on uh, allotment rolls or anything like that. Um, so I, when I was writing backwards, I ha- kind of had an idea that it was actually Melungeon instead of Indian or Native. Um, because my dad's side always specified Cherokee, but my mom's side always said Indian. Like, they weren't tribe-specific, which I always thought was weird. Um, and that's why I worded it that way in backwoods, because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't comfortable using a word that I wasn't exactly sure of yet until, you know, I had done every kind of research I could possible. Because I didn't want to be like, you know, one of those people like, oh, you know, uh, my 14th great-grandmother was Pocahontas or, you know, something like that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, if it's, I mean, uh, you know, if it's going to be life-changing, I want it to be, you know, actually real. I don't want it to be oh, well, I guess this is it. I guess we'll, you know, just go with this. Because, uh, you know, all my life I've always been asked, you know, if I was Hispanic or, you know, anything like that. And because of the way I was raised, all I could tell them was Cherokee uh, with a question mark. Because <laughs> um, even after I couldn't, you know, find anybody on like the, I think it's the Baker's Roll or something like that for the Eastern Cherokee tribe. Uh, I still kept noticing people who were marked as white sometimes or uh, mixed or black. And it just, you know, it was a continuous cycle. So I was like, what am I doing wrong here? I'm paying $40 a month for ancestry.com. What am I doing wrong here? Um, and then that's when I finally, you know, started looking more into uh, the Melungeon thing. And I just, you know, wanted to learn more about it. Um, but one of the problems I faced was uh, back in the, late 60s early 70s uh hancock county put on a a uh it was like an outdoor play called walk towards the sunset about melungeons um because newman's ridge in hancock county was the is what they said was the heart of melungeon country um and ever since then that's what the majority of the books on melungeons have been written about so that started confusing me me even more because i couldn't you know find anybody in my direct lineage, who was from Hancock County, because um, my mom's Melungeon line simply goes back to the 1850s in uh, Carter County, right on the Watauga River. Um, and then my dad's side, uh, the Richards line, I, w- I was always told growing up that the Richards line came from Scotland. Okay. And then they gave me basically a fabricated family tree that went back to the year 400, according to them. I was like, yeah, okay, we'll see about that. Right. And <laughs> I got one of those because, too. <laughs> you know, yeah, like my my mom's father's line, I mean, his family was only here for like three or four generations. And then I could easily trace it back to Ireland and Scotland. Um, so it wasn't that hard. And then they basically got to the point where I wasn't finding anything for my Melungeon lines on both sides because they both end right at 1800. Uh, then I just finally decided I don't need the like the international subscription or whatever for Ancestry, so I just signed up for the U.S. subscription because it was cheaper. Because I was like, I've, I've basically already done it all. I don't think I'm going to find anybody else. Um, but the Melungeons were a... Uh, a triracial, what they termed a triracial isolate or a little race. Um, basically a group, a group of mixed people who were white, black, and native. Um, and the origins are all over the place. There, there were some, 
I think like 200 plus similar groups like the the We Sorts in Delaware, uh, but they're also called Brandywine. Um, the Rampamo, I think I'm not saying that right, Ramapo Mountain People in, I think, New Jersey or New York. I think it's right outside of New York City. Um, and then like the Red Bones and Turks of North Carolina and, you know, just a bunch of other groups who are all, you know, some degree of uh, mixed with the, with the three races. Um, so yeah, it's all confusing. <laughs> like you go yeah. looking for one, you know, native ancestor and you end up opening Pandora's box. Yeah. They actually, they originally lived on uh, Dividing Ridge next to the Watauga River, which is funny, which is funny because the, we have a, like a fishing spot that's been passed down in the family on Watauga River. And it turns out that same fishing spot is right at the uh, eastern edge of of the ridge that they lived on. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And then my father's uh, uh, Melungeon family, they pop up. Well, the tree that they gave me apparently goes back to the year 400. But documentation-wise, like going by birth certificate, the death certificate, to find their parents, and so on and so forth, uh, it ends with uh, a great-grandfather named Benjamin, who was noted as black and uh, fought for the Civil War for the Union. Um, and I, I can't remember what kind of document it is. It's like a Civil War, I don't know, some kind of card. It basically like gives their, their complexion, their hair, their eye color, and all that. They basically stood like five foot five, dark complexion with blue eyes. Um, but beyond that, I have I can't find any records. But the tree that my dad's family gave me has his father as a Joshua Richards, which that line went back to Germany, not Scotland, like I was told. Um, but the only issue is they have it as Benjamin and his father being born in the same year. Oh, that's a little weird. <laughs> that was yeah, a little bit. At least make it believable, uh, because it was it was my mama Sadie, the one who used to make you know all the corn dollies, and she would I guess just hide them places or something, bury them. I don't know what she did with them. Uh, it was her that I was always told growing up by my mother's side that was uh, half Indian, according to them. Because I mean she was she was dark, uh, and her father, according to my uncle Rick, who actually met Oscar, uh, was darker than she was. Because when my, mo- my mother was pregnant with me, uh, she had, like, I think a- enough ambionic fluid for three pregnant women. So they basically had to uh, basically break her water for her because otherwise, if it happened naturally, the pressure, they said, would have killed me. Um, so she was, like, worried about that. And they were saying that my lungs weren't going to be de- developed. I was going to be blind, deaf, mute, all sorts of stuff. Um, and she said that uh, Memo Morgan, uh, Memo Sadie came her in a dream and basically you know told her that you know i was going to be fine or whatever um yeah and what's even stranger is my father's melungeon family uh the farthest that i can take it back to is literally like five miles north of where my mom's melungeon family first shows up wow wow but then i have like tons of aunts and uncles on my dad's side who are like still today marry uh like families with common legend surnames like Mullins, Collins, Bowling. Um, and I did their ancestry as well. And those go back to Hawkins County. So beyond that, I have no idea like how they keep meeting people from Hawkins County. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. That must've been a lot of, a lot and, of delving into the past. Yeah, it's, it is. It's definitely a headache. Like, uh, I think it was, it was last year sometime. I think it was last summer. My father told me um, when I was, you know, talking to him about all this, uh, he told me something that, that I had never known. The, my uh, great, yeah, great grandfather, John, uh, he's the one that I talk about in Backwoods where he would uh, basically lay the manure in the garden based on the moon signs. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that he was born with uh, like extra digits on his hands, polydactyl syndrome, which was apparently a, uh, they say it was a common like saying among Melungeons because it's like uh like Melungeons only uh like marrying within the same set of families or something like that. 
Um, and it said that he lived with them, you know, fought in the world war with them and all that for most of his life. And then randomly decided to have them removed, uh, during the late sixties, early seventies, which I thought was weird until, you know, it kind of like corresponded with the exact same time that they were putting on the, the Melungeon drama, just the County over at that same time. Oh, that's mm. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like too many coincidences. Yeah. So do you have any tips for folks that might be dealing with an ancestor that is malignant or causing problems in their lives? Yeah. For that reason, I always uh, make sure that my ancestors know that I do not want, um, like if I would not associate, associate with them in life, then I don't want to associate with them in death. Um, so, uh, especially, uh, like the, the people that I knew in life that I know love me dearly, I always have them kind of, uh, keep those, th- those particular spirits at bay. Um, now if it does, you know, come to the point where, uh, you know, that, you know, certain person does come through and they are causing problems, um, you can basically take take it as the fact that since they are causing problems and uh you know they're just basically wreaking havoc in your life then you can basically just treat it you know like a like a haint or a plat eye and use those same methods that i give in, in the book to uh you know whether dispel them from the house keep them at bay tie them to their grave you know whatever the case may be hmm, cool okay excellent so um Thinking about your family and your lineage and all these um, mountain folk, I'm thinking about the idea of self-reliant, uh, self-resiliency and how you have to like do it yourself a lot of the times. There's not doctors around. And so this brings mm-hmm. to the, some questions about health that we have. And um, I'm curious if you could speak to some of the causes of disease that you speak in the book of, of like tainted food or we mentioned ancestors or demons, bathroom fumes, um, and dead animals. I'm especially curious about the dead animals. Yeah. What do you What do you mean by the dead animals? Like, how do they cause disease specifically? Well, it was believed that. Um, hold on, I need a drink. My throat is dry. Go for it. <laughs> okay, that's better. Uh, so. The, but it was it was essentially before the um, before the germ theory came about. So a lot of people, especially because of how um, religion centric our lives can be here, it was uh, the, the disease was kind of like a it was some form of imbalance in the body because of some kind of internal or external cause. Mm. Um, so for like. Uh, Christian folks, it was, you know, because, oh, you sinned or, you know, God's punishing you or it's, you know, some kind of demon or evil spirit. Um, and that ties into with the uh, animistic belief that is still carried within the area from the uh, from the indigenous tribes here. Um, that, you know, when the body's not in balance with the world or with the creator, uh you know, you know, stuff starts starts to go wrong. The engine light comes on, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before the germ theory, there were all kinds of different things aside from spirits. It was uh, bad air, which is the the reason behind like dead animals, like decomposing animals, because they like bloat and then uh, you know the gas comes out or whatever. Mm. Um, so, like a lot of uh, I can't remember exactly what it was for. Um, it was either for pneumonia or tuberculosis, something to do with the lungs and the throat, um, especially in children. One old cure was, uh, the air of a different County. So like you would basically take the child a couple of counties over for a couple of hours and it was believed that that fresh air or whatever would kind of like reverse the effects of the bad air from the home County. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was basically like before the germ theory, of course, um, there were a lot of different beliefs of what caused disease. Uh, and then that's when it, you know, got into the realm of superstition and fear, uh, 
you know, where folks believed, oh, you've been cursed. Oh, it's been an evil spirit, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but even after the germ theory came about and Western medicine started being brought in here, um, a lot of people, you know, still held fast to their, you know, their uh, medicinal herbs because that's what, the, that's what, you know, their whole, and all their ancestors had always relied on. Uh, so they weren't like trustful of the, like the bottles of pills and stuff at the pharmacy. And many, many people still today aren't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which can speak a lot to, you know, the, the current um, predicament of healthcare in America as a whole. Well, it's interesting, like with these books, you're kind of talking about a culture that fading out, but at the same time, I feel like it's going to be very important in a few years. Like as like the medical yeah. industry is like, you know, antibiotics aren't working anymore. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the healthcare costs so much to do anything. You know, people go to Mexico or Canada. Yeah, and as we've seen in the past couple of years, I mean, society is easy to crumble. Right. Um, so, like, I mean, when society falls, money doesn't mean nothing. All that's going to be here is the land. Yeah. And, you know, that's why you need to know how to, you know, make a fire, what kind of, um, like, materials or anything like that can, can keep a house insulated without heat. Um, you know, all sorts of different, you know, things that you would need to, you know, whether grow your own food, hunt for your own food, uh, you know, basically make a living outside of capitalist America, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really cool that you've been putting all this down into these books, because I think that's very important for a lot of people who who aren't still connected to that what way of life, but yeah. who want to be, <laughs> you know, because like, for instance, you know, my granddad was born on a homestead in central West Virginia, but my dad was born in the suburbs. <laughs> and so, you know, I had yeah. to learn a lot of this stuff on my own. And my, I remember my granddad, um, wa- witching for water. Like he, he showed me how to do it one time and I didn't really think much of it at the time, but I wish I would have spent more time with him learning how to do that because it's such a cool, yeah. no matter how much time you spend, you spend with them. Once they're gone, you'll still wish for more time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're almost at the end of the interview. This has been pretty great. Yeah. Um, I just have one one thing that I think would be really interesting for our herbalist listeners is for you to talk about energetics, like cold heat, moisture, and dryness, and the role they play in conjure. Yeah, that is it's extremely complicated because it first it, it first played a part in uh like folk medicine and folk healing. So uh I forget, it's like some kind of uh, philosophical belief that, you know, goes back to ancient Greece. Uh, but it's believed that there's different levels of the body. Um, I think it's blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so whenever humors. one of those, yeah, that's what they're called, humors. I always forget the name for them. Um, so whenever one of them are out of balance, then it can result in... Uh, basically illness within the body. Uh, but then that was also taken further into like conjure and folk magic uh, with the degrees of like heat and cold, moisture, humidity, you know, dryness, everything like that. Um, like one thing I mentioned is uh, the vault of heaven. So I was always told that whenever there's like no clouds in the sky, that the vault of heaven is closed. Whereas if there are clouds in the sky, like, uh, you know, like it's a blue sky, but there's, you know, few clouds or depending on the number of clouds, then the vault of heaven is open. And that's when, uh, like when your prayers and stuff can be heard the best, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, totally. And you talked about um, haints appearing mostly on like a steamy night or a foggy night. Why is that? Yeah, or, you know, during like a storm and out or something like that. I think it's because of the, like the way their their spirit presents on this side through like uh, electromagnetic energy that can affect like electronics and, you know, everything like that. Mm. Uh, it's like more conductive during that kind of environment than, you know, during at noon on a dry day, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Cool. Really cool. 
Well, thank you so much, Jake, for being on the podcast. It's been a blast. And thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. And I want to encourage all our all our listeners who are interested in uh, Appalachian culture, folk magic in general, uh, hoodoo and all that kind of stuff to check out these books because they're really they're, they're a really great good. read. You, you, you've got a great voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can like hear well, your you. voice. Now that I hear your voice, I can hear it like coming through in your writing, which is really cool. And uh, we'll put your links to your books and your website in the show notes. Is there any other final final thoughts before we log off or how people can find you? Uh, uh, well, they can find me on Instagram. I think my handle is you find it. I, they're all different because all the regular just Jake Richards were taken. Uh -huh. Apparently there's so many of me. Uh, <laughs> Instagram is Jake underscore Richards 13. And then I think Twitter is the same thing, except it's, let me find it. Well, yeah, it's just Jake Richards one three one. Okay, and we'll put them on the on the on the the show notes too. Okay. Okay. Well, Great. thank you. Oh, well, I guess one other thing: Are you doing like um, like do you take clients? Uh, yeah, I I do. Um, I'm just not right now because of personal life matters. Right. But I will be again here in a couple of months. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks, and see you later. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Thank you.